Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me somehow for the first time this season, it's been since um, the Stanley Cup finale, we wrapped it up, and I had a discussion then, so it's been, whatever, six, seven months now, it's, uh, it's my good buddy Alex Pruitt. Alex, what's going on, man? There's no way you've missed me. Oh, I certainly have. I, I love having <laughs> you on. You and I, I feel like, always get into this, like, wide-ranging medley of topics. Like, it's, it's, it's a nice reprieve for me, because usually when I have people on, they're like, beat writers that cover a specific team or whatever and so we have a very like defined list of topics we want to hit or like we're we get this kind of like tunnel vision on just the columbus blue jackets for example or whatever whereas when i have you on like you bounce around the league and you do random features and you get into some weird stuff and so i feel like when i have you on it really unleashes me to just like get into like this random assortment of topics that i that i always want to get into can we brand it like like alex and dimitri's grab bag of bullshit or something like yeah, yeah, it's something like that. Okay, I mean, cool, you know, cool. we could probably get some sponsoring for that. I feel like I don't know, um, you know, I, I don't know what that would be, but uh, you know, we'll, let's uh, let's keep the flow open. Uh, we'll diapers, I don't know, something. Yeah, I'm sure we can we can make some some magic happen. Um, what's going on, man? How's it how's it been? I know that uh, you know you were kind of bouncing around. You're obviously doing doing different sports, but I feel like lately you've been uh, you've been zoning in on more hockey stuff, and that's that's great to see. I figured once the calendar turned, I should probably go to a, a cold place. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's been, um, yeah, yeah. Was that, your, was that your segue to talk about the Buffalo Sabres? Oh, it can be. I can start shrieking like Dwayne if you want. We can do that. I'm so fired up to be on this podcast. I lo- oh, my God. So you, let's do it. You know what? We've been, I've been planning to do the show for a couple weeks now, so this wasn't on our agenda. We're going to talk about McKinnon. We're going to talk about the All-Star game. We'll do some trick shot stuff and Svechnikov. But... Now that, you know, we're recording this on the Thursday evening, it's like very topical for us to talk about the Sabres story. And I just, I just love that, um, this guy caller, let's call him caller Dwayne. I don't know what his last name is, but, uh, for anyone that hasn't seen this story somehow yet, he, uh, called into WGR, the, uh, 
the local radio station there that covers the Sabres and had like an all time, I think like four minute rant or so. Like he was talking about Dominic Hasek's birthday. He was going just, he was going on the full gamut of emotions. And, uh, it was obviously, um, became a, a huge, I think national story because the Sabres as a uh, team sometimes do tried to control the message and, and basically, uh, got it taken down and tried to pretend like nothing happened. And that, uh, kind of like, you know, when you cover for a lie with another lie, it's like worse than the original one sort of thing. It's like, it just made this story, um, so much greater. And so now here we are talking Wait, about the that part I missed. They tried to take it down. Yeah, there was there's something involved. I think like uh, I don't know what the details are, so excuse me, but if it feels like um based on what I gather, they'd either like tweeted out a link to it or something and then they like they were like basically like trying to, you know, cuz it was such a great rant, I think they were trying to sort of share it so at least on social and and then uh I think the Sabres internally were pretty upset with it and um tried to sort of pretend like it hadn't happened. I, I don't know if they were trying to scrub it from the internet or anything like that, but I feel like they were like trying to kind of like put it under wraps and I know that um, you know, in the recent 31 thoughts column that Elliot Friedman does weekly he had a whole section about the Sabres and how long it's been since they made the playoffs and uh, oh boy, apparently yeah. he got some pushback on that as well so you know it's nothing new that a team wouldn't like negative coverage especially when they can control it um, but yeah it's uh, it's not a great look for the Sabres especially when they're going to miss the playoffs for the umpteenth time in a row or whatever very fitting they're down 2-1 to one in Mon- at home to Montreal right now and Jack Eichel has scored his 30th goal of the season so yeah, uh, it feels like it's exactly the way the rest of the season is going well so I've got some I did have a couple thoughts like you know I wanted to uh, obviously acknowledge that story but I wanted to get into it a bit um, more so and you know they're trending towards missing the playoffs again as you just alluded to and they haven't made the playoffs since 2011 and this is going to be the ninth consecutive season there on the outside looking in and it just it sounds like a big number, but then when you just take a step back and you think like how hard it is to go in today's hockey world where it's like parity, the salary cap, where it makes it difficult for teams to be consistently good year over year, the loser point where there's so much variability and variance in terms of the standings and for a team to just nine straight times miss out. I mean, it's, it's, it's really bonkers. Like if the Coyotes and Canucks make it as it looks like they might, um, that's going to leave the Red Wings as the next sort of, um, longest drought and that's going to be four years this season and so it's like aside from buffalo wow yeah and so the sabers are nine and so it's twice you're totally right though like in this age of parody it's like you almost have to every team it seems like has at least like lucked it lucked into a playoff spot or um by will or luck they've gotten in except for for buffalo over the past decade or so i mean st louis is going from last place to winning the stanley cup and um buffalo can't even at least sneak in i mean (laughs) The hammer for me with that guy Dwayne's call was when he said it was almost as bad as the Bills drought, which I'm sure everyone in Buffalo is like nodding their head at that. Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, you know, we talk about how the league is, um, you know, it's a copycat league. When someone's successful, teams are going to try to adopt it for themselves. And the latest thing has been, as you mentioned with the Blues there, it's like teams just have a fire in their coaches. And then, or like if they struggled last year and they, they went into this season being like, whoa, look at the Blues, anything can happen. And it's sort of like, it's this like shining light of optimism and an otherwise bleak situation. And then we have like the opposite end of the spectrum where it's, you know the Sabers were the poster child for under under um, under Murray for the you know the the full out tank like bringing the mm-hmm. trust the process to the NHL and they really tore it down and sort of made no bones about the fact that they were trying to get as many first overall picks as they could especially in the McDavid draft and you know they wound up with Eichel which is a very nice consolation prize but um, 
it, it has been, a, it's like a very polarizing topic in NHL circles, right? Whether it's successful, whether you can actually do it. We've seen examples with like the Penguins and the Blackhawks in the past that have certainly pulled it off. But then you have teams like the Sabres and the Oilers that seems like year over year, they're stuck in this like kind of spiral of never ending futility. And, and we'll see how, you know, the Red Wings go about it. It feels like the Rangers have really embraced that sort of a, a full on, um, all encompassing rebuild. But, um, yeah, the Sabres, it's just, I mean, it all comes back to they've had Jack Eichel for five years now, and I know he's no Connor McDavid, but he's still, like, the way he's played this year, especially taking his game to another level, he's been a top, like, five to ten-ish player in the league, it feels like, and that should be good enough to at least, if you surround him with, like, a certain baseline level of talent, be competitive on a nightly basis, and it looks like, once again, they're headed for, like, 80 points and a negative goal differential, and they're going to be, like, 13th or 14th in the East, and it's basically exactly where they were in, in year one of the Jack Eichel era, and five years later, they are they basically haven't moved at all forwards, I think. Yeah, when you go, just before this conversation, when I looked up, like, his relative stats and stuff, and, um, I mean, if you look at league leaders and, like, goals four per 60 relative, um, pretty much everyone at the top of the list has another guy there. You know, McDavid has Dreisaitl, Huberto has Dadunov, um, you know, Bergeron and Pasternak are right up. You know, line mates who share the ice together and naturally get a lot of goals together. Jack Eichel doesn't have anybody. Uh, he's sixth, and the next highest saber is, like, 30, 35th, 40th, something like that, Olofsson. Uh, he, he's, it just seems like he's not getting much help. Again. I mean... It's it's crazy because, you know, I'd say if you're just looking at it like big picture, you know, you have Eichel, he's signed there long term. You've got Reinhardt and Dali and has like legitimate like grade A um sort of like blue chip pieces moving forward and it's like all three of those guys are top two picks. And beyond that, for them to go this five year stretch or so without really like, you know, where they got Olofsson in the draft and sort of slowly developing him in Europe and having him come over this year, or I guess towards the end of last year, that's a boon. But like for the most part, and it goes back to this Ryan O'Reilly trade they made, it's like they've done such a bad job of talent evaluation where I don't think this is um, sort of uh, an indictment on whether you can or can't fully tank and rebuild a roster because it feels like they've had their opportunities. They've just like misevaluated who they had and which type of players they needed to go out and get time and time again and that's why they're here as opposed to you know not being able to, to build a roster a certain way but hockey being what it is it's going to become an indictment probably yeah. on on tanking um that in the age of parody you can't <laughs> you can't tear it down but it, it doesn't really feel to me like they stuck with it um i guess once once murray was out then it, it seemed like that they were going for a little bit more and granted they have that really long uh really long winning streak last year and i think i, I was as guilty of it as anyone, I went up there and wrote a big feature about Jack, Jack Eichel and how, you know, him and Phil Housley are super excited to um, kind of unite the old and the new and bring Buffalo back to where it um, where it once was. And, and you know, I, I think like what I have from my conversation with, with Jack, he's he's very invested in that place. And, you know, he was sitting at, at a restaurant and looking out the window and imagining what that plaza would be like if they actually did make the playoffs. And um, I don't think if you would ask him in this moment, you know, <laughs> would you still be sitting there a year and a half later and you guys are, you know, headed for 13th in the East and you're 10 points out of the playoffs and um, you're on another coach, you know, with that, you probably would have said you were crazy, you know, they're trending in the right direction, but um, lo and behold, here they are. I mean, I, I'm kind of curious what's going to happen. I mean, like you said, this is 
this is a lost year probably for them. They're not going to make the playoffs. Um, what happens if are, are they going to sell at the deadline? You know, for Leak, Shiri, VZ, um, someone down the line of Bogosian, are, are they selling these these pending UFAs at the deadline? What's going to happen next offseason? Um, you know, do they embrace a little bit more of a rebuild? Do you try to um, have this kind of rebuild on the fly where you sign some more guys, you know, for the cheap on, you know, two, three year deals at um, kind of the you know, middle of the road guys, three million, four million dollars or whatever, and um, try to at least be competitive and feel, and, you know, I a, a competitive team around guys like Eichel and Reinhardt and uh, Middlestat and, and Darlene, or um, do you maybe wait? I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of curious if, if um, you know, maybe they bottom out the rest of this year. Is that the smart move to do? Or you, you start thinking about Lafreniere and what your odds are. And um, mm-hmm. because it's pretty clear, right, that they need they need some other pieces. Yeah, I mean, it's the second you mentioned last year, like this year as well, they started out super hot. You know, they started off uh, yeah. earlier than last year, but um, things were looking good and then the wheels just completely came off. And I mean, I just look at, you know, Eichel's on pace. He's really taking his game to another level this year. He's on pace for 50 goals, I think, like over 100 points. He's got a point on like 45% or so on the team's total goals. And it's just like you look at him when he's on the ice at 5-on-5 and like they're basically as good as like the Tampa Bay Lightning. And I know that he gets to play with other teams' best players in theory. So it's like not, you know, with or without you stats in that regard can be misleading. But it's like with him, they're like one of the best teams in the league. And without him, they're like the Ottawa Senators. They're like down at like 45% goal share or something. And it's like that it just comes back to that where they haven't been able to surround him with the talent and there's only so much you can do in as an individual and i i think this summer like they you know the question you asked there of how they're going to approach this whether you know this this sort of drought they're in is going to try to force them to maybe be more aggressive it's like they already basically did that last year i think right like this yeah. this past summer where you know they trade for colin Miller, or trade or henry yoki haru they sign marcus johansson like it felt like and i i have to admit i i viewed each of those moves in isolation as like yeah i like that i think that's a net positive it improved their team and clearly for whatever reason it hasn't worked in, in hindsight and so um they, they kind of are back score one i guess the the one sort of silver lining or saving grace is is that fan base because despite that nine year drought, like you get caller Dwayne and you can like see that you can like feel that passion. Right. And you see why the Buffalo market is always a top NBC's TV ratings for playoff games, even though Buffalo is not playing and yeah. top of the ratings for the outdoor classic when Nashville and, and, uh, and Dallas are playing. And it's like, they, they love hockey and they want it so bad. And I guess, the fact that they haven't been scared off. I know certain certain segments of the fan base online have really been vocal now about like something has to change. There's like, we can't take this any longer, but at least it's like anger. I feel like at when, when the fan base reaches that like apathy point where it's like, they just like, they've been so broken down that they don't even care anymore. That's the most dangerous part. The fact that like, they still care enough to call in and have these four minute rants is I guess like in a way, at least that's something to build around. Yeah. And to that point, they're probably angry because they look at guys like Jack Eichel and, and Rasmus Dahlin, who are, in my mind, foundational pieces. I mean, you have your number one elite center and you have your number one D, and that's what you want to build around, um, build up the middle and on the back end. And uh, it's you know, no matter what they do, and they spend they spend well. I, I feel like the um, Pagulas have invested in that regard, and um, you know, good facilities, all that, and you know, hockey craze market. Um, it it's just not getting done. Uh, so I mean, they're certainly I, I, they're certainly willing to spend. Alex, they're paying Vili Leno, Cody Hodgson, and Christian Erhoff three million dollars combined this season. And yeah, they're paying they're paying Kyle Poso six million and mm-hmm. Jeff Skinner nine million. Um, 
So, you know, Marcus Johansson, you know, 4.5 over the next couple of years. So, I mean, that's not lacking. You know, you can't get frustrated for not spending, but you, you can certainly get frustrated at, at management for poor talent evaluation. Um, you can certainly get frustrated at the lack of results. So, um, yeah, no, I, I don't know if, you know, going all the, you can't really go all the way back to square one when you have such good players um, as your foundational core, but you got to figure out something. Maybe you add another member of that, add another member to that via trade or, um, you bought them out this year and hope you get it in the draft. But um, I don't know. Something's got to change because there's, there's probably a thousand, couple thousand more Dwayne's out there. Well, it's, it's interesting that you brought up Skinner there. Cause I was just thinking from like a philosophical perspective and um, you know, how teams manage their assets and spend their money. And this came up yesterday when Zach Cassian got his obviously much more modest, but still like $12 million total or whatever, uh, basically for playing and succeeding next to Connor McDavid, which seems like pretty much everyone could do. And we've seen that, you know, whether it's been Patrick Maroon or Alex Chasson over the years, like anyone that has played with them has scored goals. But, you know, last year Skinner comes to Buffalo and it's this great story where I, I think they did a good job identifying they could buy a low on him. And they trade for him without giving up any real premium assets. He plays 75% of his minutes of five on five with Jack Eichel. He scores 40 goals. It's a great story. And then they pay him $72 million, right? In this long-term deal. And then now this year, they split them up and they try to get depth scoring throughout the lineup after having paid Skinner. And his goals have basically been cut in half or whatever. And then this year, they're kind of doing it again where Eichel's top two line mates have been Sam Reinhardt and Victor Olofsson. And guess who's coming up for new extensions this summer? Sam Reinhardt and Victor Olofsson. And I wonder, you know, how much more they're going to get paid just because they have played with Jack Eichel this year as opposed to if they'd played on a second or a third line. And so it's like, I get what they're trying to do and they're trying to find this match. And they clearly, I don't, they want to s- s- provide Jack Eichel with uh, complimentary wingers that can help him and, and get the most out of him as well. But it's like, it also, the timing of it hasn't really worked out for them where it feels like they're kind of like they're paying guys for paying with and succeeding with Jack Eichel. And that's a tricky place to get into when you're an NHL team where you're, you're just basically paying a guy for what, who he's playing with as opposed to what he can actually do by himself. If the circumstance changes. That's why, I mean, it impresses me what GMs like Brian McClellan in Washington and Jim Rutherford in Pittsburgh have done where you know, you keep your core together, but you have to make tough decisions. You have to trade guys. You have to move salary out. And, and ultimately, you have to rely on your talent evaluation to get, you know, depth pieces. You didn't see Washington going out and paying a bunch of guys after they won the Cup. They kind of had the you know, tough reckoning that Chicago did back in the day when, um, you know, they have to get rid of members of their core. And that's a smart thing to do. You know, you go you go find guys like Hagelin and Ponick and, and, you know, Hathaway or Nick Dowd, and, and, and they're – they're a dime a dozen these days. I feel like um, you shouldn't really be locking up, you know, credit Zach Cassie and he's, he's capitalized at least on this opportunity, but what did he get four years? I mean, regardless of the price point to, to commit to a guy for four years like that, at that kind of role um, doesn't strike me as exactly wise asset management in today's hockey in today's NHL. No, certainly, especially when you have a, a finite amount of resources you can spend, even with a cap going up over time. Um, I was going to do a bit on the Ryan O'Reilly trade, but I feel like we've like dug the the blade uh, yeah. uh, here already so much. But you know, it is, it is like just looking at it now is just thinking about it. It's like, can you even name? Like we all j- joke about the Matt Duchesne trade is like just you know what Ottawa gave up versus how it wound up working out for them as opposed to Colorado basically like completely replenishing their depth chart with that trade. It's like I think the O'Reilly trade in a sense does get its due because. 
of the success he had year when last year winning the Stanley Cup and the Conn Smythe and and all of that, but it still feels like in the grand scheme of things, just based on the player that St. Louis got versus what Buffalo has to show for it and like the driving force or motivation behind the trade being like they didn't want to pay that seven point five million dollar signing bonus or whatever, like that and I mean it was bad in in, in the moment, but in hindsight it's like my God, I mean, they really just, they basically have nothing to show for it at this point, And we're like a year and a half removed. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure there were other factors. Riley, O'Reilly was pretty clearly at his yeah, wits. He end. Out. He was wanting out of there. Um, yeah, but you're, you're absolutely right. Um, if you're going to move a piece like that, you better make sure you're going to get something back in return. Something that's going to help you, especially if you're in this kind of win now mode. And when you, go out and get yeah Berglund, Spotka and Thompson and um, you expect at least some of them to come up and contribute and um, maybe not win now mode but at the very least not in like the full-on kind of trust the process Tim Murray era yeah well they got a bag of magic beans as opposed to a one really really good player um, our magic be- bag of magic beans and find something else to talk about other than the, the bummer that is the savers well okay here so here's a this is why I'm a I'm a not necessarily a broadcasting professional but certainly a podcasting professional um Here's a, one positive. So Jack Eichel this year, one of the reasons he's taken his game to a next level is the goal scoring, where he's already got 30 goals now. As I said, he's on pace for nearly 50. Part of it is volume and the fact that he plays an insane amount and shoots a lot, but that isn't necessarily new from the first couple of years of his career. The big change is years one to four, he shot 9.7% on high volume of looks. This year, he's shooting at like 17.5 heading into tonight's game. And so on the one hand, like after having a four-year sample size versus 50 games, you'd be kind of skeptical and be like, all right, what's the likelihood that he legitimately just doubled his true ta- shooting, shooting talent yeah, level? Yeah, he's shooting less. Point? I didn't realize he's shooting less than he ever has since his rookie season. On the other hand, it's like... The guy's clearly one of the more talented players in the game, came in with a pedigree. It never felt right that in a league where, especially like now, like guys are shooting like 11, 12% at league average at least for forwards, a guy of his talent level acknowledging the volume would be that low under 10%. And I guess the question of like where he legitimately is and what it's going to look like moving forward is a good segue into talking about Nathan McKinnon. It's a, a topic near and dear to my heart. And I know that ah, I see what you did there. Well you done. wrote about well it recently. And, it, and I think it's a, it's sort of a similar, I'd say, um, statistical profile in terms of what McKinnon went through. And so I really wanted to, I've talked about it before on this show ad nauseum, but considering we still don't have a satisfactory answer, in my opinion, I've heard theories of, you know, just, individual maturity um training better eating better matt duchene leaving and it finally allowing him to sort of assume a leadership role and spread his wings and realize his potential um you know the fact that he started off as an 18 year old and by the time he broke out it was like oh he was only 22 and if a guy had been playing in the hl for a year or two and then came into the league at that time we'd think about him differently um but i still haven't been satisfied i think in terms of like finding out legitimately and i don't think we ever will maybe one day uh you know slip nathan mckinnon some truth serum or whatever but i know you kind of were hanging around you were talking to him about sort of the development and the evolution as a shooter and and how he has changed that statistical profile and and i kind of wanted to sort of relitigate it a little bit with you here yeah so let's let's set the stage for the listeners so 2016-17 colorado historically awful 
48 points, 22 wins, like cap era level, awful. Um, McKinnon ends up with 53 points. He shoots 6.4%, scores 16 goals. The next year, in eight fewer games, he winds up with 39 goals, so 23 more goals. He literally doubles his shooting percent, more than doubles from 6.4 to 13.7, and then goes up from 53 points to 97. So that's what we're dealing with here. Um, you know, per game basis goes up, shooting percentage goes up. His time on ice pretty much stayed the same. He went down by three seconds per game. So it wasn't, you know, a ton, you know, it wasn't getting a ton more ice time. He was like clearly putting, um, I think more shots on net on a per game basis, but not by much. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the question. What happened? Um, the first thing that he brought up when I talked to him, um, and I've had a couple conversations with him about just his game in general, first being when I profiled him um, at the start of last season, and then we caught up again recently when they swung through uh, Long Island, was um, just his, his spot on the power play got moved. You know, For the first couple years of his career, he was in that bumper spot in the middle, and um, they eventually moved him to the left wing to the so-called OB spot. But you know, unlike, obviously, he can tee it up pretty well, and his one-timer's gotten better over time. Um, but I think that spot really freed him to attack downhill, to go laterally side to side, um, to use that kind of quick release wrist shot that where it's almost like a change up where he kind of floats it in and, um, it's a seeing eye puck, but it gets through traffic because he is so accurate. It it opened him up a little bit rather than that bumper spot where you're, you know, it's a lot of retrievals, a lot of puck support, maybe a quick one timer, low to high or something. If you get the right, kind of like Oshie does in, in Washington, but um, you know, moving him to that spot, I think he, he credited for um, opening his, his offense up a little bit on the power play, and maybe that fed into the rest of this game. I'm not sure. Certainly his power play numbers went up. You know, he goes from two power play goals in 2016-17, which is absurd. Two power play goals um, for a guy who played all 82 games and on PP1 is, is ridiculous. And then, you know, he goes up to 12 the next year and then 12 the year after that. And But again, I think we were trading DMs about this. That, doesn't al- that also doesn't explain his dramatic uptick in even strength shooting percentage, too. Right. I mean, look at it overall, right? Like, so years one to four, uh, 300 games worth, he shoots 8%. Years five to seven, and, and year seven is this year, um, 12.5% in 205 games. And <clears throat> it seems like, you know, that on the surface, I think, for most people would be like, oh, you know, it's it's not that big of a difference. But if it's like, he's going to approach like 400 shots on goal this year, right? So it's like an extra 4% there, Um that's that's a, a massive difference for him. And so on the one hand, um, I'm sure the Avalanche would have loved for him to right out of the gate just be this player. And who knows what their franchise would look like if that had been the case. I know, you know, he had an amazing 18-year-old rookie season and then a bit of injuries and struggles here and there. But the one sort of silver lining there was after that third season, heading into the fourth year, they sign him to this seven-year, $6.3 million, uh salary extension, and he's still going to be on that for the next couple of years, despite being routinely a, a top three player in the league. And it's it, it really is the type of like a franchise-altering contract and sort of crossroads where it allows them to get so much more creative, you know, they don't have to worry about how much they're paying Miko Rantanen, uh, especially with Kill McCarr still on his ELC. Like they can get so aggressive uh, this season at the deadline, this summer, so on and so forth. So many different avenues to explore to improve their team. And so it's not necessarily like a replicable thing by any means. I don't think there's like a lot of sort of uh, functional practical application here, but it's just, it, it has been uh, such a fascinating career arc to me where he, 
the talent was always there, but like the, in a way, like the execution kind of finally matched it at age 22. And now he's blossomed in right there in the conversation with McDavid for best player in the league. One thing that struck me when I, in my conversation with him is that he, he's extremely aware of his own numbers, of other people's numbers, um, of the cap situation. I think this is clearly borne out in um, the way he's approaching his next contract negotiations when he's coming out and saying, you know, I'll, I'll gladly take less for the benefit of the team because look at what it, you know, look at what taking less did for, for Pittsburgh, for instance, um, or look at what, that's, you know, the good contract. I say, that lot. sounds like a terrible idea. W- which part? Well, they're taking the less money. I'm, I'm always like, players, you, you need to look out for yourself. Like, you know, it's... Oh, 100%. At the very least, though, he's thinking about this stuff. Yes. Uh, yeah. He's kind of aware. He, he's aware of how awesome his contract is right now. I think three three more years left at 6.3 for a hard trophy winners or yeah. potential hard trophy winners. Absurd. Um, but but more than that, like, he's, he, he's very aware, I think, of his own stats. And, you know, when we talked before the start of last season, um, I went back and looked at my notes and... Um, one quote that stood out was, I, I feel like I'm an above average hockey player. So an above average shooting percentage makes sense. Makes sense. We were talking about his, his breakout year the year prior when he had, what was it? You know, 39 goals and 74 games. And, um, you know, he said, I wasn't, it wasn't like I scored 40 and shot 25%. Um, so I, I think he, he kind of understands like, um, yeah, he's very aware of his own numbers and very aware. I think this was borne out with, you know, a guy like Andre Burakovsky comes in and, um, I think Ryan Clark from the athletic wrote about this. So I don't, want to credit him correctly that um you know nathan mckinnon goes up to him and is like hey I, i've looked at your numbers you know you, you need to shoot more um you're a good player i've, I've watched your shifts and stuff so um it, it wouldn't surprise me that he had done you know similar analysis on his own game and um and i wish it's something i'd ask him about more specifically but maybe he looks at you know shooting lo- shot locations or shot types or um, he certainly diversified his shot selection. I think, I think you pointed this out. He's, he's almost slowed down a little bit at certain times when mm-hmm. he's such a, like a bull with a pair of rocket boosters on the back of his, his hind legs. Sometimes when he's coming down the ice and the, just how fast he stick handles, he can almost get ahead of himself. But, um, it, I was kind of surprised at how many goals, for instance, he scored this year that are from like really deep. He loves that kind of like pop out three high, uh, maybe off the draw or something, um, kind of in the middle, uh, in between his two defensemen up high and then he'll almost or even when he's moving laterally left to right he'll almost like, just like float a shot in there i mentioned before kind of like a change up and he's he's scored like three or four times on that this year and you know it's not necessarily like a, a wicked shot that he's blowing by the guy but he just kind of floats it through traffic because he understands that you know sometimes with a, as much as teams are trying to block shots and clog the lane you can almost use that to your advantage and he doesn't get talked about, um, you know, in the discussion with like Austin Matthews and Philip Forsberg in terms of guys who creatively change their shot angle and, and, uh, change the speeds to sort of deceive goalies, kind of like, you know, a, a lefty pitcher in the MLB. But it's like, we always think yeah, of him be. as, he should be, yeah. Well, we always think of him as this guy that's like, all power and it certainly is and it's the main driving force of his game and it's like you know mcdavid is much more sort of fluid um the kind of like artistic like in terms of getting from point a to point b in the ice mckinnon there's no doubt about it like he basically plants his foot and goes and he's he's like a horse he just like like it's it's remarkable to see the force that he drives down the ice with with the puck and it's the same in the offensive zone on the power play where he's constantly moving like when he gets the puck it seems like he like 
makes like three or four small little um little moves before he even decides what he's going to do with it and and it's like he kind of like just operates as if he's just like pounded like a full pot of coffee or something before hopping on the ice but i think oh, he's, even the way his body his upper body yeah. moves too he's always shaking and shimmying and trying to deceive people in that way well and and you know the, 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 that sort of a sneaky uh shot that you mentioned like you you do see it where he's not necessarily just especially in the power play uh restricted to that kind of left circle of his like he will sometimes switch with the defenseman and go to the top of the point and try to operate with a full uh scope of the ice there and you know whether it's the one timer and you sort of see the force he generates with it and you like you when you know it goes like bar down or something and he beats a goalie cleanly you're like how this guy ever shoot eight percent for uh, a 10 game stretch let alone four seasons um you know that's one thing but it is just like you know even like off the rush at five on five as you mentioned like it's the full array of weapons and the full scope of his shooting arsenal and and that's why it's so um you know remarkable to me and i think it is still even even though you did talk to him and write about it and ryan clark's done a good job of documenting it as well and i had him on the podcast and we talked about it a bunch as well it's like it's still i feel like there's more to kind of probe away at there in terms of like revealing information of what sort of fundamentally changed there and how uh that kind of came to be and maybe when we get and you know this could be a good segue into getting into the all-star game and tracking data but i think like being able to plot that much more visually um in terms of where it's happening on the ice and sort of all the other factors that tie into it maybe that could be kind of illuminating for us as well yeah um let's get into that i i feel like we can kind of almost divide the tracking data into two buckets one is what's going to be cool for the fans and obviously there'll be overlap with people like us who are interested in who are fans and are interested in the analytic stuff but then what is useful for the teams um you know i'm not sure if you know distance covered may be useful um for teams to measure how much you know how much ground guys are covering per game to measure workload and effort but they already have ways of doing that probably um so yeah is average speed going to be beneficial for teams or is it just going to be something that's cool for you know fans to say oh look at Connor mcdavid he's so much faster than everybody else which is what you know we already knew but now we have some numbers to back it up i'm mostly curious what what data is going to be available to teams whether they'll be able to scrape the raw data that's being logged with from these track this tracking system whether they'll uh, yeah, and, and then what they're going to pull out of it, what's what teams are going to f- find actually useful. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, okay, so the, the league trotted out all the player tracking data it'll have access to <clears throat> throughout All-Star Weekend, um, you know, both in terms of the skill competition and the three-on-three during the women's portion, but also on, uh, on the Saturday with the actual All-Star game itself. And I guess there's two ways to look at it, right? Like the glass half full approach would be, they were just sort of flexing on us in the sense that like they were using this exhibition event as an opportunity to whet our appetites and sort of tease us with the potential of what they're capable of and kind of like show us the firepower power they all of a sudden have in this treasure trove of data. It's like, oh, look, look what we can do. On the other hand, I've been following the NHL for long enough to kind of have this uh, jaded opinion of things. And maybe it's more realistic. Maybe it's just more uh, negative. But I feel like the league sometimes doesn't have a great grasp of what people actually want. And... um 
I'd say if you're betting on it, there's probably a good chance they're going to mess up at least initially in terms of, um, you know, kind of just like throwing it all at us, like word vomit and just being like, look at all this. And, and, you know, that exhibition yeah, on, a, on a website that doesn't even load or something. Yeah. On a website, it should be all over the place, but even on like the actual broadcast itself, right? Like I think the user experience of it is really important. And I thought the way they went about it was just clearly way too cumbersome. I mean, uh, just like intrusive to the viewing experience during the live gameplay, whether it was the name tags on the players on the ice or whether it was having this like chart in the top left corner with like the changing speeds of how past all the players are moving. And it's just like the numbers are just rapidly scrolling back and forth or that like puck trailer they had uh, reminiscent of the glow puck days, like mm. all of that stuff. Um, if they go that route, I think it's going to be a big swing and a miss. And I think it's going to turn off a lot of fans. And I already heard from a bunch of people during the all-star process where they were like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with this. Like, please no. Like uh, we don't need it during this HD era where it's like, you can cleanly see everything on the ice. You don't need to muck it up with all this stuff. But I think if they have the right approach in terms of like, let's use this for, replays let's use this for analysis let's use this um on a more digital perspective so that people can play around with the data and actually um do like you know investigations and ask questions and find answers using it like i think that is like the potential there is kind of overwhelming for like how we can play around with it and from a storytelling perspective what we can do so yeah i guess it kind of goes into that like practical versus kind of like functional and sort of just like just like how um I guess how they're going to go about unveiling it and what they're going to give to us and then how we are going to use it ourselves. Like, I think that's a big question. Yeah. I think about other sports where there's much more, I'm going to say like digestible and advanced tracking data already available, basketball, baseball, even soccer to a certain degree. Um, that doesn't really intrude on the broadcast that I watch at least. Uh, maybe it'll show up in a graphic or during a, a stoppage. Uh, maybe it'll show up as a little, you know, something that passes completed, for instance, will drop down on the soccer scoreboard. Um, but you, know, you don't really see a lot of like basketball broadcasts being um, kind of cluttered with, oh, you know, here's their percentage on pick and rolls that's, you know, start with, start at the, the top of the key. And, you know, there's like a help side defense, whatever, whatever it may be. I mean, there's an infinite amount of data available in basketball. Well, but. If, if the NHL was doing it, like from the NBA perspective, it would be like, there'd be a point guard dribbling at the top of the key to start a possession. And like the NHL would like have like a tracker pop up on the screen. It'll be like, this guy's dribbled one, two, three, four, five. And it'll just keep like counting up how many times. Yeah, he's dribbled. And it'd be like, this is so like, a low highlight on it as it bounces and it makes a boing sound or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wish we could just kind of start. Cause I do think that it, this is going to help clarify a lot of stuff for us. Um, I mean, I was, I was trading some texts with Steve Valiquette who runs ClearSight Analytics. And mm. I mean, it's literally just an army of people every day tracking every single goal and every single shot in every single game. Um, and and he, he said that he's most excited for it because um, it's going to help decide or help accurately count shots that actually hit the net, um, which is such a basic thing, like counting shots. But the current data that we have right now is coming from people who are sitting up in the booth and, you know, they're all professionals, but they miss stuff. And that's why, you know, hits are widely, widely vary from building to building, but even shots that, you know, Steve Valcat saying that routinely every morning, his, his trackers will log games and they'll figure, you know, they'll count 
multiple shots per game that either were logged as shots and shouldn't have been logged as shots because they were going high or wide or whatever, or shots that, you know, vice versa. Um, so, I mean, that's an extremely rudimentary thing. I mean, shot count, um, but something that tracking is going to help us improve. And I, I feel like maybe if we temper our expectations a little bit, we might get a little bit more out of it. But, um, but again, that's, that's like the fan bucket. And then there's also the team bucket, like how are t- our team's going to be able to use this data? Are they going to be able to, are they going to get better player evaluation because they know, you know, which guys are better at, at cycle passes down low versus passes through the neutral zone or passes, mm. whatever it may be. Um, what is this data going to tell us or what is this data going to tell teams that will ideally improve their ability to actually evaluate players? Well, it's fitting you bring up ClearSight Analytics because on the most recent PDO cast, I had uh, Kevin Woodley on and he uses that for his analysis and, and evaluating goalies and, you know, off the air before we started recording, he, he was kind of just like we we're playing around on his laptop with uh, some of the stuff and sort of the, you know, the like uh, the actual interface of it online and, and the information they have. And you're right. The, the first thing that stuck out to me was like how different uh, they're just like even bare, like straight up raw save percentages are to the ones listed on the NHL page um, yeah. where there's clearly overcounting going on in, in certain uh, rinks and in certain uh, scorekeepers. And then the other one is like, I mean, it seems so simple. It's crazy that in 2020, we don't have access to this yet, but just from like goalie and from goalie analysis, it's like just knowing how often the goalie was screened, for example, like knowing how many times he had to move, uh, laterally before he made the save, like where there was a pass preceding the shot. And it's like all this stuff is, you know, we're going to find that certain things maybe aren't as important maybe as others, but it's like when you go from, oh, this guy has stopped this percentage of the shots he's faced to, okay, well, this is where those shots actually came from, uh, everything that happened leading up to it, what the goalie had to do, and just in accounting for all the factors, it's like it's going to open up this whole sort of landscape of, of uh, I guess, context more than anything that is going to be really invaluable for us. Yeah, could we break it down to such a level that we have, similar to how baseball has, like, route efficiency for outfielders making catches, could you have, like, goaltender you know, save efficiency almost there, how efficient they were coming off their posts and moving left to right to make a save. Were they out of position? Is there a way to, to, to actually quantify that? Is there a way via tracking to quantify shot quality based on, you know, where bodies are and, and how high, you know, the launch angle at which the puck was, it's, it's kind of infinite almost the, um, what we could do with this, but, uh, again, we all have to get the data first and figure out what the hell we're going to well, do. There's much smarter people than I. There was one cool one, which I did note on Twitter at the time during the All-Star game where they showed the um, like kind of geometry of uh, like the attacker in the offensive zone and then like the defensive triangle uh, during three on three around them and sort of show the distance of how far the actual defenders were from the player with the puck and sort of those like coordinates. And I think that's going to fill a huge gap for us just in terms of defensive analysis where right now um, we are very uh, sort of results based. I feel like in terms of 
what makes it good. It's like so hard to quantify defense because the best event is nothing that ever happened, right? It's like the best defensive players are the ones who have the best shot and goal suppression numbers. But it's like finding out how that came to be. And and on the flip side, you know, offensively, I've talked about this with like that uh, basketball concept of like the gravity. It's like, you know, the star players, like how close on the power play are defensemen keeping to Alex Ovechkin and how much space is that opening up for others and sort of, I think it's going to explain a lot in terms of um, the defensive attention and where people are on the ice as a coordinate is going to explain a lot to us from like, I think answering a lot of our questions for why players have these wild shooting percentage uh, fluctuations year over year where it's like one guy just shoots 8% one year and then 17% the next year and then back to 11 and it's like Part of it is is inevitably, I think we're going to find just luck in sort of the nature of the beast. There's so much happening and so much moving moving around and the nature of like shooting that puck through a bunch of bodies towards a goalie. Like sometimes it's going to go in and sometimes it's not. But um, just kind of uh, being able to account for the defensive attention and where they're getting around on the ice and back to McKinnon, for example, like how he's going about uh, actually launching those shots, I think is going to teach us and be very illuminating and and the other thing i'd say is quantifying passing ability where it's like yeah right now we're so reliant on assists as our barometer of who the best passers are and i think you know even with the most in-depth data we'd probably conclude that like yeah the best passers over the past 10 years have been henrik city nicholas backstrom and joel thorne it's like yeah, yeah i'm sure that's going to bear out regardless but um you know we it can get such such more useful information from like that soccer component of sort of uh, like the, the the actual touches and the volume and, and the efficiency of the passing and completed passes and uh, you know just it's going to be much more process over results oriented where we're like uh, a guy who's constantly passing to a guy who might be having a, a weird shooting percentage dip season all of a sudden his assists go down and it's like oh you know we can conclude that he was actually individually isolating all those factors and just viewing his own play like, he was just as good regardless of how often the puck was going in the net as a passer and so i think that's going to be pretty cool as well yeah i mean the hardest part is going to be like defining broken plays um 50 50 pucks because that's a lot of hockey is you know just the fundamental nature of it It happens on ice the puck wobbles there are ruts in the ice and the puck goes in the air and, and it's it's a lot less clean than all these other sports that we're tracking right so um i'm wondering like the information that we do get uh how much of the totality of the actual game is it going to capture um i think they had they were talking that I don't know the guy who's running the, I forget his name. He's running the tracking company that the league's partnering with, but talk about an example where, you know, you pass the puck off the backboards, um, you know, one of these like Hail Mary kind of old school Michael Grabner Rangers type passes where you just let it fly and then hope to win the foot race. Does that count as a pass? Right. Um, you know, if you pass the puck and it wobbles in the air and then skips up in the air and it's an incomplete pass, you know, who, who's, whose fault is that? Is that, how is that logged or, um, you know, if it bounces off the board, well, there's so many different kind of factors just by na- the nature of um, the sport itself that, that are so unique to hockey when it comes to actually logging this data, I feel like mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, yeah, yeah. Might, be hard, might be hard to distill. It will, but as long as you have, I think, um, a consistent definition and then you have a large enough sample, like I think eventually a lot of that stuff will 
sort of even out, right? It's like, how often are guys like exclusively making those passes? It's like, probably not that often. Like in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it'll ultimately affect the numbers that much. I'm sure there are going to be like the rare occasion. And that's why it'll be just as important to have the human element context of having watched that player and being able to account for that and sort of have it a mental note of like, oh yeah, well maybe this explains why that's happening. Like you're never going to be able to erase that, but it'll at least be much more sort of instructive for people who can't really just like justify watching every single team every single night to look at some of those numbers and then maybe the next time they're watching them they'll know what to key in on and be like oh i wonder why that's happening maybe i'll watch them and see and so i think it's going to be lead to a lot many more questions but it's like it's a great place for the league to be in um it's going to kind of take us out of this like stone age of like yeah all we have is like shots and assists and and goals and and that's about it yeah yeah, exactly. yeah, but but even settling on like in a consensus definition of some of these things will be difficult because a lot. I mean, even like you know, completed passes is to a certain you know, puck to, you know, tape to tape. Okay, that's a completed pass, but to a certain degree, it might be subjective, um, depending on you know what happens if the guy bobbles it or if the puck hops off his stick because it was a, a poor pass. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's not just like shot quality that's such a subjective thing, but um Well, I'll give you a great actual real life example of that. Like I've over the past couple of years, um I didn't last year, but a couple of years before that, during the postseason I do this like manual tracking project where i would count the the breakouts and and sort of try to learn more about like which defensemen were low-key actually super effective because just looking at pure point totals for go for defensemen especially can be very misleading and um one thing i did notice and you know when you compare them with the information of a tracking company like sport logic or whatever that already has all this stuff is there's a big difference of opinion in terms of um a play that's very common in today's game like a low percentage of the time you're going to have a defenseman exiting his zone and he's going to cleanly tape to tape, make a pass to a forward who's going to receive the puck cleanly and then carry it into the offensive zone. Most times what teams do is like the defenseman just fires the puck up the ice and then a forward around center ice kind of like chips it a little bit. And it, it's like basically a dump in and then the forwards go and retrieve it in the, all the way across the ice. And it's like, it's really tough to know who to place that blame on, whether the defenseman actually made a pass that could have been cleanly received by the forward or whether it was kind of off and the forward had to adjust on the fly and audible and kind of tip it as opposed to cleanly receiving it themselves. And it's like, yeah, so you're right. It's going to, yeah. Was he late in a shift and, you know, he was just trying to get off the ice and and that was just, that's their designed breakout because they have their, the other guys flying down the opposite wing and they want him to go retrieve the puck or so it's, yeah, it's also contextual. It is, but I think, uh, you know, the big picture is going to be really important. And I think also, like, just breaking down more, like, set plays, especially in the offensive and defensive zone, I think is going to be very, very useful. So, oh, I'm excited gonna, about it. For, like, power play, like, in zone stuff for power play and penalty kill, I, I see it being extremely useful in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Yeah. We're at, like, at the 50 minute mark here. Is, um, did you want to touch on anything else while we're, while we're here? Like whether it's something you worked on in, in the recent past or whether it's something you're going to be doing moving forward or. Um, well, I spent some time in Carolina as part of okay. my effort to get a little bit back into hockey. Um, spent a couple of days down there. I booked a trip actually before turned out Justin Williams was coming back. So uh, that turned out extremely lucky because I was able to be there as he was like going through his, um, his fitness testing right before. So he had to do all the fitness testing that every single player had to do in the preseason, except he has to do it in um, you know, December or January or whatever before he's coming back. And 
um, it struck me just how ready he was. Um, it was, I, I think it was clear. I think he had a tough decision at the start. Um, and that was why he decided to not come back to the hurricanes at the start of the season. Um, but once he got that bug back and once he realized that he wanted to at least try, um, you know, the nature of his personality, he, he wasn't going to give it anything less than hundred percent. So, you know, he's out there skating alone. He's, he, he's getting guys like Cam Ward and Tim Gleason to come out and like feed the pucks because he has no one to, to actually practice. And, um, I, I think it's, you know, he's off to a nice start, two goals in two games for Carolina. Um, but you know, it, they've had such good growth from guys like Svechnikov and, um, you know, I was really impressed by seeing Marty Nietzsche up close. And, um, I, I don't think that Justin really has to be anything more than, um, kind of a bottom six guy, but he, he isn't he the exactly like the kind of third line scorer that you would want in the playoffs. Um, you know, obviously experienced, but a puck possession monster and um, capable of chipping in timely goals when it counts. And, and that, that's what you need to win in the playoffs. And that's um, probably about as good as a trade deadline acquisition as they were going to get. Certainly. And that's why it was no surprise that uh, there were countless other teams, like including the Bruins and, and others that were sort of checking in and seeing, whether they could kind of, you know, dissuade them to, from going back to Carolina and maybe joining them instead for a long playoff run. But I don't know, maybe part of it is just me being a bit naive here. But like I, without any inside information, I just felt like it was like so obvious the entire time. It was telling no, me I think, that he was I think that's back. accurate. Like, yeah. I, I, you know, we've seen this in other sports much more so than in hockey, but I think we'll see it more during this, like, yeah, as we're, you know, this whole, like, I know it's taboo, this load management era or whatever, but it's like, if you're an older player with the mileage Justin Williams has and everything you've accomplished, it's like, why would you be going through training camp and regular exhibition and then playing in October and November? It's like, you're so much better off. Obviously you still need to like stay in shape and kind of keep, keep, keep going at it throughout the year. But it's like, save yourself a little bit and, and kind of keep some fuel in the tank and then come back mid season, especially if it's a situation you're already very comfortable and familiar with, like he is with Carolina. And so, um, I think it's kind of a no brainer. Like I've been thinking the, the Bruins should be doing that with, with Sedano Chara for a long time now. And, and, uh, you know, Yarmory Arger certainly did it for a while. And, and, uh, I think we're going to see much, many more veterans follow that route. It just seems like it makes way too much sense not to, uh, not to go about it. Like 82 regular season games for a guy who's in his late thirties is just, uh, it seems completely pointless. I, I've started playing like fantasy basketball over the past couple of years. And it surprises me relative to hockey. Like how often guys just, yeah, like that load management, they just, you know, okay, we're on a back to back or something. We're just going to sit out this game. It's not worth it. It's a long season. And um, granted the, the pecking order and the standings is probably a little more established. You probably know what you have relative to the rest of the league a little sooner in the NBA than the NHL. But I'm, I'm with you. I mean, the only thing standing in the way is just, probably like pride, right? Like guys yeah. saying, no, I'm a hockey player. I don't want to, I don't want to shut it down. I don't want to take a game off. You know, I'm, we must play, but like that is very clearly not, not the wisest thing to do, especially if you're gunning for a long playoff run. Cause man, is it a grind once you get to that point? And, um, every little bit adds up. I mean, it's, it's why Alex Ovechkin skips the all-star game. You know, I, I think it's, um, well, maybe one of several reasons, but, uh, you know, the, the mileage adds up and once you get, once you get that late in your career, um, I think you're certainly entitled to, to shut it down. Or, and at the very least, you should listen to the um, trove of, of biological, biomedical data that we now have at our disposal when it taught when they talk about you know workload and um, recovery and you know okay we we saw that you skated a lot this practice maybe we take a little bit off this next practice take a little bit off this game because you had a hard hard workload this past game. Um, yeah, I, I feel like we could definitely see that come in a little bit more. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's pride. It's like the sort of hockey sort of. That's gotta be it, right? A lot of pride. Yeah. Yeah. We hear from a lot of, a lot of players. It's like, uh, you know, it sounds good in theory. You're like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm good. I I think I'm going to hang it up. And then, you know, the, the game start and you're like, ah, oh, I'm just around my family all the time. Maybe I could get back out there. And obviously if your body's holding up, um, a lot of the guys seem, seem to get the itch. And I think it's a great fit for Williams and, and the Canes. Um, you know, you mentioned Ovechkin there. I, I was, I was thinking, I've never really talked about this with you, but, uh, you know, you've clearly, you've gone on to do many great things and, and will do so moving forward, but you did also, uh, in a past life, cover the uh, Washington Capitals full time, and you're around Ovechkin a lot. And now that um, you know he's approaching 700 goals now, and we're kind of reigniting this conversation of the chase for uh, for for Gretzky and and where he can ultimately wind up on on the uh, goal scoring list all time. Like, did you uh, do you wish? Do you have a little itch like that you were just kind of like hanging around there and just covering him during this part part of his career? Yeah, and the team too. Um, I mean, I, I really enjoyed covering. Yeah, him and, and Backstrom and Carlson and Hol- I mean, Holpe is one of my favorite conversations to have with anybody in the entire league. But um, yeah, it wouldn't shock me one bit if a. Well, I think he'll definitely take a run at it. Um, I think that's certainly in his mind and certainly important important to him, especially now that he has a cup. Um, but B, it wouldn't shock me if he if he actually got there. Um, I mean, Russian machine never breaks, right? He's it's shocking me every time I go to his hockey reference page. And I'm like, wow, he's 34 now. Like, yeah. it's it's unreal. And and you know, he's he's gonna get 50 goals again. Um, he'll be right up there at the league lead. He's he's still scoring the same way that he always has. Um, he's still as dynamic off the rush and, and as dangerous as he ever, as he ever has been with that um, kind of left little lateral movement. He has just cha- almost shooting right through guys. And then obviously the one timer, as long as, um, as long as their power play is, is really good. And, and he's not the literally the only weapon out there and, and teams just can't, although they still try to put some player in his hip pocket and play four on three. Um, I still think he'll get his looks as improbable as it is that he still continues to, to fire shots from that left circle, even though everyone knows that it's coming from there. So, um, I mean, unless he, unless he gets hurt, unless his body starts breaking down once he, once he gets over 35 or, um, I don't know, maybe he'll have some, some change of heart where he, he doesn't want to keep going once his contract is out. I don't know. I don't have any insider information here, but I, I find it really hard, um, to conceive of a, of a situation in which he's, he's getting close. I mean, he'll hit 700, I don't know, probably by, by Valentine's Day, potentially. Yeah, maybe by the time uh, we release this podcast. That's how we release, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. So um, I think the club, he, he has such admiration for Gretzky. I think they get together at least, um, I mean, I know they have at least twice and gotten together for dinner. Well, usually when they go out, the Caps go out on their West Coast swing. Um, and he, he loves just sitting down with Wayne and I think picking his brain. And um, I think the quotes I've seen, Gretzky's rooting for him and thinks he probably can do it too. And records are made to be broken. And, um, I don't know how many of Gretzky's records are actually going to fall. The fact that someone's even like close to this is, is remarkable. And, um, without question, he's the greatest goal scorer of our generation. Barry Trotz, I think recently said he's the greatest goal scorer ever. ever. Once you adjust for error. Yeah, yeah. Ever, ever, right. We could say ever at this point. Um, yeah, I, God, I want to see him take a run at that. Cause I mean, what, what a wonderful thing that would be for hockey too, to have that kind of, you know, day to day, uh, it, you know, reminds me almost of like the McGuire Sosa home run chase. Um, can you just imagine what it would be like to have the, you know, the OB tracker as he counts down to getting Gretzky every, every single goal that he scores would be you know, international news. I think at that point. 
Yeah, I guess we'll see. Like, it, it did feel like for a while there he was hinting that after his contract was up, he'd be done or at least like maybe go close out his career in Russia. But, you know, he's got next year. And then now uh, that especially with Backstrom signed for the four years after that, it feels like the writing's on the wall that, you know, those two guys, I know Backstrom's a couple years younger than him. But um, with how Ovechkin's going right now, it's 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 tricky because on the one hand, like he's historically just sh- destroyed or brought down our expectations so many times where it's like you can't compare him to regular human beings at this point but at the same time it's like we know that like especially at this age like all it takes is just like one bad injury or whatever and maybe the player is physically never the same or never able to recover and and um you know he's never he's been just remarkably durable and that's kind of the most undertold part of his legacy i think throughout his career but it'll be fascinating to see i i, I really I want, it's amazing that at age 34, he still plays with the type of force and vigor and excitement when he scores as he does. And I want that to always be the lasting image. I don't want to see him chasing that record, looking like latter stages Jerome McGinley, where he's like being wheeled around the ice and basically can't skate anymore and is purely a power play guy. Like, I get it from a historical perspective. If he's close enough, it's like, you kind of take the good with the bad and you just enjoy the fact that he's going to potentially be the number one goal scorer ever. But um, I never really want to think about him that way in terms of like just being a shell of himself physically, because that physicality has been such a part of what's made him special over all these years. Yeah. And I'm not sure he, he would want to think of himself that way either. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I can envision. Yeah. Old man, Ovechkin climbing over the boards and playing seven minutes a night and six of which are on the power play or something. But um, yeah, I mean, his durability is I'm just doing some quick math there. One, two, four, five. He's missed nine games since the lockout season. Yeah, and how many of those have either been like all-star, all-star game suspensions yeah, or exactly. like one time he missed curfew or something like, Right. Yeah. Nine game. Nine. Yeah, that's right. One time. One time he showed up late to a morning sk- or like a morning skate or a practice or something, and they sat him that night against San Jose. I think that was the year I was covering the team, or maybe right after yep. that. Um, nine games in seven years. Yeah. Eight years. Yeah. Uh, for a guy who plays as hard as he does and plays the minutes that he does, um, that's absurd. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, Alex. Well, uh, we'll have plenty more time to talk about that, and uh, we'll have you back on the show sometime down the road. Let's uh, let's get out of here, pug some stuff. What? Uh, where can people check you out, and what are you working on these days? Uh, SI.com, and uh, as of recently, thanks to our new pot- partnership, thehockeynews.com. Um, mm. We're kind of cro- cross-sharing some content there, so you'll see um, you know, Ken Campbell, Matt Larkin, Ryan Kennedy, Jerry Clinton, those guys on our site, and you'll see me and uh, Dan Falkenheim, Chris and Nelson, um, other people on the hockey news site. So, so don't be alarmed. We're still working at the same spot. Hmm. Um, I would say go, go check out my stuff online. I have, um, see a story recently on Akeem Alou headed over to the Czech Republic to try and reinvigorate hmm. his career after everything that went, went down with, um, Bill Peters incident. Um, talked to Martin Furk recently about him setting his, uh, his record setting 109.2 mile an hour shot at the AHL all-star game. And, uh, the bevy of uh, goaltenders and other players and teammates, even he has bruised along the way there with his hmm. uh, really hard shot. Um, and then a good bit of Kane's coverage. Um, in addition to hanging out with Dustin Williams, I went and uh, spent some time with Andrei Svechnikov. Uh, he was attending uh, a local youth hockey practice and uh, literally every single kid there asked him to do the lacrosse move and he did it and they went well out. <laughs> 
um, it's amazing. Like, it, it, I, I've had people, I had people down there kind of postulate that, um, no like single event has done more to like gin up interest at the youth hockey level in Carolina, uh, than his lacrosse shot. Like since they won the cup, yeah. um, every single kid at every single level down there is trying to pull off lacrosse move. Um, as you know, Justin Williams, this kid is, is spending time after practice or Rod Brindamore's kid is like coming to the, to the Canes rink and like trying the Sveshnikov move. Ryan Dezingle's cousins came to like young cousins, like age five or six or something, um, came to, came to practice and all they wanted to do was like hang around Sveshnikov. Um, he, he is a delight to be around and he is, uh, just in some ways kind of a wide eyed teenager, but man, what, what skill that kid has and, and like surprising bite too. Um, I think until you watch him up close, you don't realize that uh, you know, once his body fills out a little bit more, he's going to be probably one of the premier power forwards in the, in the league, but also with the skill to um, pull off some sort of ridiculous trick shot like that. He is, uh, yeah, he's an absolute unit, man. Um, all right, Alex, this was a blast. I'm glad we did this, and uh, we'll check, check in soon, okay? Thanks, bud. and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast.